0: Hey, everyone. Ashley here. Check out this awesome podcast called Rogue Ramblings. They talk about everything from COVID-19 to past lives. And once a month, they even do a crazy cool D&D campaign. So there's definitely something for everyone here. And we really hope you will head to their page and check them out. Have a great week, guys. hey guys i'm melissa with rogue ramblings we're a podcast featuring controversial topics interesting ideas but mostly random nonsense some things we've covered before are mortals lord of the rings space coronavirus
1: um, (laughs) past lives multi-universe theories just basically anything and everything once a month we do a DD episode featuring a very chaotic campaign that's also super fun uh we're found on most major podcast platforms and we hope you guys give us a listen
0: is histories and mysteries i'm your host ashley
1: and your other host is jessica and on this week's episode ashley is going to be talking about the ed kemper case and i'm going to be finishing my three-part series on the romanovs peace um okay so i would like to give a little warning
0: before i dive into my case because his case is very disturbing very graphic he's a very very
1: sick man Noted. Thank you. Mine <laughs> You're welcome. my story goes a little bit um intense near the end, so Kay. but definitely not as bad. <laughs> yeah, Ed Kemper is a whew.
0: Um I got my information from biography dot com, Murderpedia, and Wikipedia.
1: Nice. <clears throat>
0: um, okay, so Ed Kemper was born on December eighteenth, nineteen forty eight to a very rough life. Um, his parents divorced and he lived with his alcoholic mother. And for some reason, she did not like him. She was really hard on him, um, very critical of him, and even made him live in the basement. Um, so Because she was afraid he would rape and hurt his sisters. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Okay. Um, so, what I'm going to get into is, like, kind of how fucked up he was as a kid. And I don't know if his mother knew this, and that's why she was, like, critical of him and mean to him and made him leave in the basement or if she was just cruel herself um but he apparently would decapitate and reenact sexual rituals on his sister's dolls oh um uh, animal abuse alert okay he also stabbed one of his cats to death um another cat he buried alive unburied it decapitated it and put its head on a stake what yeah oh Um, and like I said, I couldn't figure out how much of this his mother knew. Um, so, um, when his sisters were, when he was younger, um, his sisters were like teasing him about kissing his teacher. Cause I think he had like a little kid crush on a teacher, you know? And they said, well, why don't you just go kiss her? And he said, well, if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. Oh. Yeah. And that was his second grade teacher Um, he also said that he would take his father's bayonet and watch his second grade teacher through her windows um he said that his favorite games to play were gas chamber and electric chair he would have his sisters tie him up flip an imaginary switch where he would then wither and writhe on the ground until he you know quotation died lovely um so his whole family was really fucked up. At one point, his sister tried to push him in front of a train. Um, okay. She also pushed him into the deep end of a pool where he almost drowned.
1: His sister? His sister. Oh, okay, lovely. And she's not fucked up? Right? <laughs> um,
0: his mom was very abusive, both, both emotionally and physically to him. Um, She didn't want to show him any affection for fear that she would, quote, turn him gay. Um, she would mock his size. He's a ginormous man. At the age of 15, he was six foot four. Um, she would frequently say he reminded her of his father and that he would never find love.
1: (laughs) that's so nice.
0: Yeah. At the age of 14, he ran away from his mom, ran to his dad, but his dad didn't really want him either. Um, he let him stay with him for a little bit, but then ended up kicking him out. So he was shipped to live with his grand, shipped off to live with his grandparents. Um, his grandma was just as abusive, abusive as his mother, so probably where his mother learned it from. And she and Ed would argue a lot. And on August twenty seventh, nineteen sixty four, at the age of fifteen, Ed shot his grandma in the back of the head and killed what? her. What? Yeah. Holy shit. His reason was that quote. I just wanted to know what it felt like to kill grandma. Oh, okay. Uh, When his grandpa got back from the grocery store, uh, Ed killed him too, saying that he didn't want him to have to see his dead wife's body. Oh, okay. Kemper then called his mother and said, what should I do? And she said, well, call the police. So he did. Um, He was obviously arrested and admitted to the... Atta Sadero State Hospital. It's A-T-A-S-C-A-D-E-R-O. Nailed it. Thanks. welcome. <laughs>
1: <You're
0: bald now. laughs> <laughs> so he was admitted to the Atta State Hospital <laughs> and <laughs> was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Um, he only stayed there for four years because he befriended the counselor and, like, tricked him. Uh, he was even trained to admit- administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. And understanding these tests and how they work helped him to manipulate others when he was arrested again in the future. So, he murdered his grandma and grandpa, stayed in a mental institution for four years, and then was released. Lovely. Um,
1: Didn't do him any good.
0: Yeah. So, Ed was actually really well-liked. He was very charming. He was extremely smart. He had a really, really high IQ. Like, he was a genius level. And he could trick anyone into liking him, which he uses to his advantage.
1: Which all of them do.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, And once he got out, because he got out on, like, good behavior, they expunged his record. So there was no background that he killed his grandparents.
1: Hey, his full name was Edmund. Yeah.
0: Edmund Kemper.
1: Interesting. Once released,
0: his doctors recommended that he not live with his mother because... um, you know, the psychological abuse and hatred he had towards her, but he didn't have anywhere else to go. So back to her he went. Uh, he tried attending community college, but that didn't really last long. And so in 1971, he started working for the Department of Transportation. He was such a model, oh, well, yeah, here, sorry about that, sorry. He was such a model patient citizen that they expunged his records on November 29th, 1972. He tried to become a state trooper. Like, he really wanted to be a state trooper. Uh, that was his passion. But ultimately, he was rejected because he was too large to fit in the uniforms. Oh. At this point, he was six foot nine.
1: Holy shit. Yeah. Okay.
0: And weighed around 300 pounds.
1: Holy jeepers. Yeah. I was going to say, he doesn't look like a fat man. Like, no, he's
0: just ginormous.
1: Yeah. Which is um, even scarier.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And this is where his charm came in handy. He was actually known to hang out at a lot of the police bars and made friends with several of them. At one point, one police officer gave him a training school badge and handcuffs, and another let him borrow a gun. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Unfortunately for the world, Ed got hit by a car when he was on his motorcycle and he was unable to work. He filed a civil lawsuit and won fifteen thousand dollars, which adjusted for inflation is about ninety thousand dollars now. Okay. Uh, which he used to buy a car. So he now had a new car. He wasn't working because he couldn't because he got he was injured, and he had a lot of free time on his hands to sit, think, and ponder. Cool. He also started to notice that many women in the area were hitchhiking, and it gave him even more to think about. He started to think about what he might need if he were to pick up one of these hitchhikers and murder them. So he packed his car with a gun, a knife, and handcuffs, you know, just to be prepared. Um, He definitely worked his way up to murder. He started off just by picking up women and then letting them go. Like, he was just kind of, like, testing the waters.
1: Yeah.
0: Until May 7th, 1972, when poor Marianne Pesky and Anita Luchessa entered his car. The two 18-year-old girls were on their way to Stanford University when Ed Kemper picked them up to give them a ride there. Instead, he parked his car, murdered them, brought their bodies back to his place. There, he dismembered them, took pictures, sexually assaulted their body, and disposed of them. Um, Again, I'm going to give another warning here. This next part is pretty graphic, and it was something he really enjoyed doing, so he did it quite often. He would... Shove himself into the decapitated heads' mouths.
1: I'm sorry. What?
0: Yeah. There's a word for it. Um, where you forcefully, uh, you force someone to give you head, basically. Yeah. And so that's what he did on the decapitated heads. Lovely. Marianne was found and identified, but they never found the remains of Anita. Um, His next murder came four months later on September 14th, 1972. Ed picked up 15-year-old Eiko Koo. Uh He actually gained her trust while holding her at gunpoint. Like, he gave her this sob story. He gained her trust so much so that when he accidentally locked himself out of the car, she let him back in. Aww. And, I mean, remember, she's 15, you yeah. know. Yeah. He taped her mouth shut to suffocate her, and once she passed out, he raped her and then used her scarf to suffocate her to death. Um, He then, again, brought her body back to his place where he dismembered her.
1: Oh, the poor girl. Yeah. His next victim
0: was on January 8th, 1973, 19-year-old Cindy Shaw. He forced her into the trunk, shot her, and then had sex with her dead body. Ugh. Again he shoved himself into her sever heads mouths for several day mouth for several days. Ew. Um, yeah. Several days. Several days. Ugh. He then buried her head in his mother's backyard facing upward towards his mother's bedroom. Ew. He said he did this because his mother always wanted people to look up to her.
1: Okay. <sighs> Actually, I'm not enjoying this story.
0: Yeah, this story's awful. <laughs> yeah. On February 5th, he murdered both 23-year-old Roland Thorpe and 21-year-old Alice Lou. When asked why he decapitated his victims, he said, the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, the eyes, the mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. <laughs> Finally, on April 20th, he killed for the last time, thankfully. Um, oh, he went to stay at his... Bananas.
1: Huh? It's holy bananas, thankfully.
0: Yeah. He went to stay at his mother's house, waited for her to fall asleep, and then beat her with a hammer, slit her throat, <sighs> decapitated her, Raped her severed head.
1: Oh, his mother? His mother. Ew.
0: And then used her head as a dartboard. He said he screamed at her head and threw darts at it for an hour before finally enraged, smashing it in. Oh. He also cut her tongue and larynx out and put them in the garbage disposal. Why? He said, he, he'll tell you. This seemed appropriate as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over all the years. Okay. Um, Apparently, the garbage disposal had a hard time with that, though, so they found most of it still in there. Ugh. He cleaned up. Uh, He then called her best friend Sally Hallett over and strangled her to death, thinking that it would create a cover story that the two best friends just went away on vacation. Okay. He put their bodies in the closet and left a note for police that said, approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday, no need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep in the way I wanted it. No, not sloppy and incomplete, gents, just a lack of time. Guy got things to do. Jeez. After this murder, Kemper drove 1,000 miles to Pueblo, Colorado, uh, he had three guns and a ton of ammo, thinking he was going to be the target of a manhunt. But the police hadn't found the bodies yet. So Kemper called the police. He confessed to murdering his mother and Sally. But the police knew him, remember? He was friends with all the police officers. Yeah. So they thought he was joking and said, just call back later. Like, what kind of joke is that, right?
1: Yeah, literally.
0: Um, so... A few hours later, he called back and asked to speak to an officer that he knew personally and confessed. When the police arrived, he also confessed to the murder of the six other students. When asked why he turned himself in, he said, the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose anymore. It was a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Towards the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing, and it was... At the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just had to say to hell with it and called it all off. He was arrested on eight counts of first-degree murder. Um, Because he basically confessed to everything, the only defense his lawyers could really come up with was an insanity plea. Yeah. But after seeing several court-appointed psychiatrists, it was found that he was legally sane. Um, He knew what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. One doctor apparently interviewed him under a truth serum. And Kemper further confessed that he had engaged in cannibalism. He apparently sliced flesh from the legs of his victims and put them in a casserole. Um, but he later recanted this confession. So, who knows? Ew,
1: still gross.
0: Yeah. During his trial, Kemper took the stand and said he killed the victims because he wanted them for himself like possessions. He tried to convince the jury he was insane by saying that he had two beings inhabiting his body and when the killer took over, it was kind of like blacking out. Remember, he had this background in um you know, administering psychiatric tests to these sexual abuse victims or sexual abusers and had like kind of knew what to say, you know, yeah. to try and make himself sound insane. Ugh. His jury was six men and six women. They deliberated for five hours before finding him guilty on all counts. Uh, Kemper himself had asked for the death, pen- death penalty requesting death by torture. But, like, that's not a thing. So, <laughs> And at the time, the Supreme Court of California had actually placed a moratorium on capital punishment. So he instead re- received seven years to life for each count served concurrently. He was sentenced to the California Medical Facility where, fun fact, Charles Manson was. Ooh, at the same time? Yeah. Cool. There was apparently another serial killer there as well named Herbert Mullen who killed around the same time and in the same area as Kemper. But Kemper didn't like him. Uh, He said that he was just a cold-blooded killer killing everybody he saw for no good reason. So apparently Kemper saw himself as better as this other serial killer. Uh And apparently he picked on him. Ed would pick on Herbert. Lovely. Um and Ed Kemper did really well in prison. Um, first of all, he's huge, so like no one fucking messed with him. Um, and second of all, he's really smart. He was considered a model prisoner and was even giving the task of scheduling other inmates' appointments with a psychiatrist. He also read audiobooks for the blind. He was the coordinator of the program and spent over five thousand hours narrating books. Um, he had a stroke in 2015 and was declared medically disabled and could no longer complete these tasks. Uh Okay. He also participated in several interviews that contributed to an extreme depth of knowledge of the serial killer's mind. Um, FBI profiler, John Douglas said Kemper is among the brightest prison inmates we've ever interviewed and capable of rare insight for a violent criminal. Wow! Fun fact, the lead role in Mindhunter is loosely based on John Douglas and there's a big storyline of his interviews with Kemper.
1: I was going to ask if that was who he was based off of.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Cool.
0: Kemper said that he's so open about his murders to save others like himself from killing. He said, and this quote I think is extremely interesting into his mind and how it works because he's not He's, he, well, let me just read it to you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He said, there's somebody out there that's watching this and hasn't done that, hasn't killed people and wants to and rages inside and struggles with that feeling or is so sure they have it under control. They need to talk to somebody about it. Trust somebody enough to sit down and talk about something that isn't a crime. Thinking that way isn't a crime. Doing it is a crime. It's a horrible thing. It doesn't know when to quit and it can't be stopped easily once it starts. So he was more worried, not about victims, but about how obsessive it becomes within the person and how it sucks for that yeah. person. Um, I also didn't know this. Ed Kemper is still alive. What? Yeah. He's been denied parole at every attempt. Um, and he has another attempt in 2024.
1: Oh, yeah. He's 72. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's crazy. I thought he died.
0: I did, too. He's still around. Uh fun fact, Ed was the inspiration for the character of Buffalo Bill in the Silence of the Lambs. Cool. And never
1: that is never seen that
0: movie. You've never seen Silence of the Lambs? No. Oh my god, Jessica, you have to watch it. It's so good. It's so good.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, never seen it.
0: It's so creepy, but it's so
1: good. That's awesome. Well, that was a cool story. I liked it. Like I I didn't like it. It made me very uncomfortable, but like Right, right, right. Very (laughs) fascinating. (laughs) Yes. Disgusting. That
0: was shorter than I thought it was going to be.
1: That was four pages. I must have just blasted through that. Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to be finishing my Three Poor Romanov series. Ooh. Turn into a New Yorker there for a second. Yeah, you did. Uh, okay so just to recap just a little bit um we talked about nicholas in his early years nicholas ii who was the last Tsar of russia anastasia's father um we talked about the very bad russo japanese war where the russians lost which ultimately led to a bunch of riots and demonstrations and protests which murdered them all yeah then they murdered them all on bloody sunday And that, well, a huge chunk of them. And then we had the Imperial Duma, which was set up, which was supposed to try and help everyone of the lower class kind of have their voice heard. And then it kind of got disbanded. And then it was brought back, but just with the upper class, which kind of defeated the whole purpose of it. And so this is basically where we're at right now. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to start talking about um, Alexandra, who is Nicholas II's wife, and Rasputin and their relationship. Oh, okay. So, Princess Alexandra was the wife of Nicholas II. She was most definitely the dominant personality between the two. Okay. And she encouraged the weaker Nicholas oh. um, autocratic tendencies, Uh, so she encouraged the weaker Nicholas's autocratic tendencies. Okay. Um, however, Alexandra's first form of controlling Nicholas was through reading and writing in his diary. Oh, okay. What a little psychopath. Yeah. I don't remember any of this. Holy crap. Okay. And this
0: was the love of his life.
1: The love of his life that, like, he waited for his father to basically die, in order for them to get married, so clearly his father knew something he didn't about her. Yeah, but like how yeah. freaking crazy? Yeah, what a little controlling freak. <laughs> um, from Alexandra's journal from before she w- married Nicholas, there was a collection of utterances true from a somewhat unlikely philosopher who ruled over the mind and soul of the brilliantly educated Alexandra of Hesse, the half-literate Russian peasant Grigory Rasputin. He was a peasant? Yes, he was. Oh. Yeah. He sure was not royal or anything. He was not super high up. He was just who he was. Okay. Uh, Rasputin first appeared in St. Petersburg as a man of God, living as a poor man who offered himself as help to those who were suffering or in turmoil. He met the young princess, Alexandra, at a luncheon where she immediately became fascinated by him. Rasputin followed Alexandra when she became empress and helped her and her family with their problems. And one day, while speaking to one of his officers of the guard, Nicholas stated that Rasputin is a good religious Russian peasant. Okay. So, if anybody's seen the Anastasia movie, <laughs> he is not portrayed to be as such. And it basically no. portrays him to be hated by the royal family.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that honestly, like, wasn't the case, realistically. Okay. Well, you know, they had to have some kind of villain. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nicholas continued to say that when he is distressed about something, he will speak with Rasputin and feel peace after. Okay. So he's like an advisor. Yes. Uh, To Alexandra, however, Rasputin was that and much more. She eventually came to believe that Rasputin was a personal emissary from God to her, to her husband, and to Russia. Okay. Also, as proof of his ability to heal, Rasputin was able to help Alexei, who was Nicholas's youngest child and only son, so his heir to the throne. Oh, yeah, because wasn't he, um, he had that blood clotting disease, right? Yes. So Alexei was cursed with hemophilia. Yeah. And it was so bad that the only cure from the pain was if he blacked out.
0: Oh, poor little guy.
1: Yeah. So, countless times, he was in so much pain that his family was, like, certain he was going to die. Aww. However, Rasputin was able to hypnotize Alexei in a more favorable place, um, like, into a more favorable place, sorry. And therefore, his pain was less severe. Okay. So, he basically, like, made him believe he was somewhere else. He wasn't feeling the pain. He was just... Okay. He was able to feel better. Gotcha. Just kind of, like, mental direction. Yeah, exactly. Many disagree with something like this, obviously. hmm But there is a strong body of responsible opinion which believes hypnosis, if properly used, can play a part in controlling hemophiliac... Sorry, hemophilic bleeding. Okay. So apparently there is some study done, I guess, that proved that hypnosis can help you with this type of pain Interesting. this is the reason why Alexandra held on to Rasputin so much because he was the only one that could save her son from dying mm-hmm. um, but before his death Rasputin prophesied that six weeks after Alexei's death oh gosh no sorry <laughs> before Rasputin's death Rasputin prophesied that six weeks after his death, Alexei would be in great danger and the country on the edge of ruin. Uh-oh. Then, less than two months after Rasputin's assassination, Alexei felt very ill and the country was shaken by the first revolutionary upheavals.
0: Oh.
1: So, his prophecy came true. Yeah, it's not looking <laughs> good. No. Not looking good. (laughs) So at that time, the Bolsheviks came about out of Russia's Social Democratic Party. And when this party split in 1903, Lenin was the only obvious leader. There were members of this party that believed in waiting for history to run its course. And Lenin, a man of getting things done, (laughs) attacked these issues. Lenin wanted to kickstart the issue he believed in to get things done rather than wait on polemics. What the heck are these words? <laughs> Arguments, speeches, attacks, discourses. Okay, so he basically just wanted to like get shit done before shit hit the fan. Got it. All right. Got it, got it. Lenin believed that any method was acceptable as long as the aim was achieved. Lenin had a great strength to organize a party, which most had to be done before 1917 in secrecy. So, Lenin teamed up with a man by the name of Trotsky, who was very skilled as a military leader and who was very devoted to the revolution. This dynamic duo led to a very potent combination. And during the revolution of 1917, which Lenin planned and Trotsky played out, Lenin made a speech. Oh no. I was just deleted everything. <laughs> <laughs> so Lenin's speech was, history will not forgive revolutionaries for procrastinating when they could be victorious today. If we seize power today, We seize it not in opposition to the Soviets, but on their behalf. The seizure of power is a business of uprising. It would be an infinite crime on the part of the revolutionaries were they to let the chance slip, knowing that the salvation of the revolution, the offer of peace, the salvation of Petrograd, salvation from famine, the transfer of the land to the peasants, depends on them. So, very... Very lively speech (laughs) yes (laughs) something else for sure (laughs) um if you were a revolutionary would you answer the call would you hang off of every word that dripped from lenin's tongue because he spoke of salvation of freedom and a chance to do what you wanted basically Uh and lenin had a dream and his dream was revolution Uh so why wouldn't you answer that call right Especially with how hard life was at that time. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, I, I just... That's the thing. And it kind of, like, sounds, like, more like it's those cult leaders, right? So, mm-hmm. like, you're, you're having a rough time and then somebody comes to you with, like, this grand, beautiful idea. <laughs> right. Exactly. So. All right. So, this basically led to the end of the Romanovs. Um, so, when the revolution ended in 1917, Nicholas and his family were imprisoned. And they spent the first five months after the revolution as prisoners at Czar's Tsar, Cove, Zelo, Cello. Okay. Czar's Cove, cello. Let's go with Sounds that. Sounds great. <laughs> perfect (laughs) then they were moved to Tobolsk in August and then in April Commissar Yakovlev came from Moscow to bring the prisoners to Yekaterinburg (laughs) in the Urals oh my goodness I hate my life right now (laughs) um Yekaterinburg in the Urals which was their final destination People don't come at me for these pronunciations. please. It's (laughs) Russian. I don't know Russian. (laughs) Uh, Through all of this, the family members were still somewhat jovial in the sense that they were all together and not separated from one another. Yeah. um, Which is nice to think about. (laughs) Uh On their last day in 1918, without knowing it, the family did not sing like they normally did. However, they had the same kind of day. So they basically woke up at the same time they always did. They were allowed to go on two one-hour walks outside, and they just ate as they had before. However, the only difference and sad part about it was that Alexandra stayed inside with Alexei because he wasn't feeling well because of his hemophilia. Aww. So... They didn't get to all spend the day together. Yeah. Uh, Commissar Yurovsky was the man who planned and followed through with the execution of the Tsar and his family. Um, Yurovsky found men to shoot the royal family, and so when the time came, the old guards were changed with Yurovsky's new men, and men and the men from before that were left were told not to panic if they heard gunfire so the volunteers that were like that volunteered to kill them um agreed to aim for their hearts so that they wouldn't suffer but this plan didn't go over very well like they had hoped so slight this is where it gets a little tragic sorry everyone Um, slightly after midnight on July 17th, 1918, Commissar Yurovsky led Nicholas and his family into a basement cellar room where he announced to Nicholas that the white army was approaching in an attempt to free him and his family. Yurovsky admitted that they had failed and that he must shoot them all. And so Yurovsky seized his pistol and fired. Nicholas II fell to the ground. Each of Yurovsky's men chose for themselves a victim. So, this is a quote from a book that I read. It says Yurovsky had reserved the Tsar and the Tsarevich, so Alexei, for himself. Most of the prisoners died immediately. Alexis groaned, and Yarovsky killed him with one shot. Anastasia had only been wounded. When the murderers approached her, she cried out and was bayoneted instantly. Oh, my God. Yeah. This was or one... was she? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was one way in which their murder was depicted. But in Nicholas and Alexandra by Robert Massey, it's depicted in a different way. The two accounts are very similar. But in this novel, it's done in a very intriguing, heart-wrenching kind of way. Um, After Yarovsky said he has to kill them all, Nicholas stood in front of Alexandra and Alexei to protect them, and then he was shot once in the head, killed instantly. Hmm. Alexandra, Olga, Marie, and Tatiana were all shot once and died instantly, while Alexei was untouched for the time being, and Anastasia had only fainted from the fright. Okay. A quote from this book says, Alexis, lying on the ground, still in the arms of his father, feebly moved his hand to clutch his father's coat. Aww. Isn't it so sad? Aww. Savagely, one of the executioners kicked the Tsarevich, so Alexei, in the head with his heavy boot. Yurovsky stepped up and fired two shots into the boy's ear. Just at that moment, Anastasia regained consciousness and screamed. With bayonets and rifle butts, the entire band turned on her. In a moment, she too lay still. It was ended.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: This version of the story, unfortunately, is more gruesome and tragic than the previous example. Mm -hmm. But in all reality, that is what it would have been like for them. It would have been such a horrific moment for the two youngest members of the family to see their whole family slaughtered before them. Um, this version also proved how Nicholas II wasn't just a leader but a father. He attempted to protect his family even when they were there, like even when there was no hope left. Aww. And before Nicholas became czar, his life was full of fun and adventure, and then his life was filled with darkness until finally he and his entire family were painfully executed and i i remember reading this book for this paper and i had a meeting like a an advisor meeting with my professor to go over the draft of my paper like halfway through mm-hmm. and i just remember telling him like i was in bed crying when i read this part of the book it's so sad it was so sad and it was in so much detail and unfortunately they went into detail about how their Family dog was killed too. Oh gosh, yeah, it was just awful, awful. <laughs> so, I have a little conclusion here. Okay, <laughs> uh, Nicholas II hardly had any choices when it came to his destiny, like his life. Right? He basically yeah. was like he had no choice whether or not he wanted to be the czar, and therefore, his future was already set out before him, unfortunately um the failures of nicholas showed little in his favor he failed on numerous occasions and due to these failures nicholas is perhaps regarded by many as one of the worst czars of russia um when first hearing of him it's hard to say yes indeed he had many failures but he was a good father who also cared deeply for his country um These thoughts should never cross anyone's mind until they look deeper into his life, I guess. Um, Like, rarely is he spoken of in textbooks for being a good father and caring much for his children or wife. But, like, in textbooks, he's spoken of in relation to Bloody Sunday or the Duma, which both ended in failure. Yeah. Or even, like, the Russo-Japanese wars. (laughs) Right. Um, but I kind of wanted, like, through this essay to, like, kind of bring a different light to him. Like, he wasn't just a failure. Like, he cared about his country. He cared about his people. He just... He tried. He tried his best, but unfortunately, like, he just didn't know how to carry it out. Yeah. And it ultimately ended in a lot of death and a lot of heartache. So, yeah, for sure. But anyways, that is the end of my story. What a sad ending. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it had to be done. Yes. Yes, of course.
0: Well, thank you everyone for tuning in again. And if you'd like more of us, lovely ladies, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at Histories and Mysteries, or you can email us at Histories and Mysteries 515 at gmail.com.
1: Yeah, and if you guys want to, like, rate and review us, that'd be super fantastic.
0: Yeah, please. We would love it.
1: That's all I had to say.
0: Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, again, thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to bringing you two new stories next week. Bye,
1: guys. Bye. Bye.